But before we uh, kind of get into that, we're going to take a look at the bigger picture of the book of Hebrews to help us navigate through the trees uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, you can, uh, if you want to sort of get into the bigger picture in a bit more depth, uh, Andrew Malone from Ridley College came and spoke to us earlier in the week uh, on Wednesday and you can catch uh, a recording of his talk on our website. Uh, also, uh, Peter Adam, as uh, Nat mentioned, uh, has a commentary out there for $20. It's bargain, a bargain at double the price. So let's have a look at the book of Hebrews. Now there are lots of uh, types of writing uh, in the Bible. You'll see uh, an outline about this for this introduction on the left uh, in your new sheet there. Uh, lots of types of writing in the Bible. But what is Hebrews? Well, Hebrews ends like a New Testament letter, but if you read through it, it reads a bit like a sermon really. Uh, there are large sections of deep theological reflection uh, and uh, Old Testament exposition and there are kind of application points through it uh, that are based on those. But the writer of, the he- of uh, Hebrews describes it like this. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. This is a brief letter, uh, and it's really uh, a, a sermon uh, that uh, the writer is writing uh, to the recipients. But it's all, all also a really great way to see how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ and to see how the Old and the New Testaments really intersect. Having said all that, we don't actually know who wrote it. Uh, some have speculated it was the Apostle Paul, but that's unlikely. So we really just don't know. What is clear, though, is that the writer was known uh, to the original readers and was probably one of their leaders. Uh, They were away, uh, uh, somewhere separated, and so uh, they wrote down what they would have liked to have said, I guess, in person. Again, we don't know exactly who it was written to. I mean, the title isn't really that specific, is it? The Hebrews. Indeed, this title isn't actually original. It was given to the book uh, sometime in the second century. But as we read through the letter, we get some clues as to who the original uh, recipients were. It's probably written to a group of Jewish Christians or a community with a number of Jewish Christians in it, hence the title, To the Hebrews. There's lots in the letter about Israel's history Uh, explanations about how Jesus fulfills and supersedes uh, the Old Testament uh, Jewish institutions. You see, they were great, but they were a shadow. And Christ is the reality. Another clue about the original recipients is given in chapter 2, verse 3. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Uh, These people, it seems, along with the author, uh, had not heard from Jesus himself. Now, that's one reason why Paul is probably not the author, because we know that he heard from Jesus himself. But they all learned of this great salvation from those who had heard Jesus. So they were, if if you like, second generation Christians, one down the line. And as we read on, we also learn that these, uh, the recipients had uh, suffered significant persecution in the past. This is from chapter 10, verse 32. 
Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you had endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They had suffered, hadn't they? But notice, even though they had suffered, their faith at that time had really flourished. Well, that was then and this is now. And and since then, a great problem had developed. Things had kind of become unstuck. A A very serious spiritual crisis had emerged amongst them. You see, scattered right through this letter are a number of urgent warnings, a a series of alarm bells that toll right through the letter. Here's a few examples from chapter 2. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Or chapter 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Or chapter 4, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. He's talking about the wilderness generation, the Israelites. And these alarm bells, these warnings come in response to this great spiritual crisis. You see, in the face of persecution, in the face of worldly attractions, in the face of apathy, some feel the pull back to their Jewish faith. Some feel the temptation to desert Christ and faith altogether. That's the great spiritual crisis. We often talk about the gulf between the Bible and us. That was then, this is now. What relevance does this have for me? Well, as I read through this letter here at the beginning of 2023, it seems that gap, that gulf, it's not so great after all, is it? Because that great spiritual crisis that's being addressed so powerfully in this letter, is it not a crisis we face today? It's a danger that arises after you've been a Christian a while, a danger that the writer describes as drifting. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Drifting. It's like a boat that's become kind of untethered from its moorings. The writer warns of the danger of drifting. Drifting from Christ as the secure centre, the living heartbeat of our lives. Drifting from him towards something more tangible something more familiar, something more 
comfortable, something more secure, drifting towards something that's better. That's the spiritual crisis. I know that crisis and I strongly suspect that you know it in your lives and the lives of the people you know as well. And the purpose of this letter is to address that crisis, to warn against the danger of drifting and to urge potential drifters, cling to Christ, cling to him, cling to the salvation that is found in him alone. And that message is as relevant for us as it was for them. Well, that's a bit of an overview of the book of Hebrews and the aim of the rest of this morning is to look uh, at uh, the first four verses. Uh, We'll get there soon, I promise, but first we're going to jump forward a bit in order to understand the purposes of these, uh, these first four verses. Now, if you've got your outline there, just flip over to the back there. I've got some of the wider context there. Notice that verse 5 which is sort of a little bit down the page, it's in bold, uh, begins with the word for. And the reason it begins with the word for is because, well, verse 5 right down to the end of the chapter is really closely connected to these first four verses. It's one argument. And if you want to see the point of the argument, well, you need to skip forward to chapter 2. That point is flagged there by the word Therefore, in, the, uh, in, in your outline, it's kind of in the middle of the verse, but in the original, it's at the start of the verse. And that's telling us this really is the conclusion of this argument, the end point, the application of our passage. Have a listen with me. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Many of us know people who have drifted away, don't we? Perhaps that's been you at some point in the past. Maybe that's you now. Well, how how do you guard against drifting away? What are we going to do to see that we and our brothers and sisters around us don't drift away? Pay most careful attention to what you have heard. The word about the Son, his word about a very great salvation. You see, Christianity is, is, is not primarily about patching up my problems. Uh, I could do that and, and I might not even need Christianity or, or any faith to do that. 
Uh, Christianity is also not chiefly about learning how to be a good person. There are plenty of people who can live good lives, upright lives, at least on the surface, without faith. No, Christianity is about a great salvation. A great salvation that's centred on the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that. It began with Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, but its fulfilment lies in the future. And the point that the writer is driving at is that we need to pay careful attention to keep to Jesus and that salvation because apart from Christ, there is no salvation. And he's going to do that in a very powerful way. You see, in the first four verses, he's going to point to Christ, the majesty of Jesus, the glorious Son of God. Now, keeping all that in mind, let's read the first four verses again together. I'll read and you can read along in your mind. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In the original language, that's one long, remarkable sentence. And as potential spiritual drifters, we need to hear it. We need to hear about the unmatchable greatness, the unrivaled glory of the Son of God. Because once you know that, here and here, how could you drift away? Now, one way to get across how great how magnificent Christ is, is by comparing him to something else that's also great and by showing how Jesus is so much better. And that's what's happening right through Hebrews and that's what's happening here. Verse 1, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now there's a comparison here but one that might not grab you immediately. But think for for, for a moment... He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures uh, spoken through the prophets. Just think, God, the, the creator of all things, the judge of all people, he's actually spoken. He's communicated, he's revealed himself to us. The Old Testament, you see, it contains the very words of this God. That's what the Old Testament is. And if you have a look down at verse 4, the reference here is making a similar point. In the Old Testament period, God spoke through his prophets. He also communicated through angels. 
They were his divine messages. They wielded his divine authority. Now the writer will speak uh, in the next passage about how much better Jesus is than the angels. But friends, the point for today is this. The Old Testament scriptures, well, they're utterly extraordinary. In them, the God of the universe reveals himself. He speaks to us. But, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The last days are not some uh, special period in the future. They began with the coming of Christ. The last days are now. Now God's speaking. His revelation has reached a climax. God has spoken in a way that he has never spoken before. He has spoken by his Son. He is God's greatest, his final, his definitive revelation to us. Friends, who better to reveal God to make him and his ways known than his glorious Son? No one. He's the ultimate prophet of God. And the fact that God has revealed himself like this means that God is not a mystery. He's not shrouded in some cloud of unknowing. If you want to truly know God, you can. You don't need special enlightenment. You don't need a special ritual. You just need to come to Jesus, to the Son. And we meet him here in the Scriptures. And if the Son of God is his full, final and definitive word, if he is how we truly meet God, how important is it, how urgent is it that we pay most careful attention to him? That we listen to him, that we heed him, that we obey him. Before we move on, let me say that God's word in Christ hasn't made the Old Testament scriptures redundant or irrelevant. He's not the new model that's made the old model kind of obsolete that we just sort of chuck out. No, uh, in Jesus, in his work and words, the Old Testament finds its fulfilment, its true meaning. God And God has still spoken through the prophets. We must still listen to and obey these words, but now we must understand them through the lens of Christ. Indeed, to fully understand who he is and what he has done and what he teaches, we need to understand the Old Testament and that's what Hebrews helps us do so powerfully. Now, in order for us to help see more vividly the greatness of Jesus, our writer makes a further series of statements about him. Some are allusions to various Old Testament texts which I'll briefly unpack. From the second part of verse 2, the second sentence there, second one down on the outline. Jesus is the one whom he, God, appointed as heir of all things. Uh, this here really is an allusion to Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is about God's ideal king, 
But that ideal king uh, never existed in Israel's history. Uh, all of Israel's kings, all of Judah's kings, they were sinful, they were flawed, they died. And what the writer is saying is that Jesus, he's that ideal king. He's the true son. In Psalm 2, the king who is also called God's son, after his coronation, he's given all things. This is what it says in verse 8. God is saying to the king, I will make you, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. All things are given to this king. What did Jesus say after his resurrection, which was his coronation? He said, All authority has been given to me. All things. Jesus is the one that God has appointed to rule over all things, to own all things. The entire universe is his and under his reign. And if that's who Jesus Christ is, can you see why we must pay careful attention? why we need to heed his word and obey it. Now to the end of verse 3. Now the reason I'm skipping there is I think this passage is very deliberately structured. Now I've kind of tried to capture it a little bit in the outline if you have a look there. It's like a series of concentric statements. The first statement Uh, is related to the last one, the second to the second last one, and so on, and you can see the pattern there. I think the structure is there to really uh, help place emphasis on, to draw our attention to what lies in the middle. Now, this way of doing things, it's called a chiasm. You don't really need to know that, but knowing how this passage works helps us really understand uh, its meaning. And so you can see that the last part of verse 3 corresponds to the second part. Let's have a look at that part. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, again here is is an allusion to the Old Testament. This time I think it's Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110 is similar in many ways to Psalm 2. It's called a messianic psalm, like Psalm 2 is, which a messiah just means king, so it's a psalm about the king. And Psalm 110 is also a description of God's ideal king who rules over the whole world. And the right hand is a reference to the uh, place of ultimate authority. But if you go to Psalm 110, it actually adds something to Psalm 2. In Psalm 110, the king is not just a king, he's also a priest. Now a priest in the Old Testament is someone who stands between us and God. He acts as a bridge to bring us in all our brokenness, our weakness, our sin back into relationship with a holy God. And that's what is being said here. Jesus is not just the king, he's the ultimate priest. There were lots of priests under the old covenant but there were none like Jesus. 
On the cross, he made the ultimate sacrifice. By his blood, he purified us from the stain and the guilt of our sin. He secured ultimate and full forgiveness once and for all. He opened the way back to relationship with God forever. That's what it means when it says he sat down, right, at the right hand of God. His offering was accepted. His work was finished, complete. Sin had been fully and finally paid for forever and because of Jesus we can come to God with joy and confidence in full relationship with our loving father sisters and brothers do you see him do you see Jesus in his glory there is none like him He's the perfect prophet, the ultimate revelation of God. He's the perfect king. He's the perfect priest who provides full redemption and full forgiveness of sin. If you've been a Christian a while, sometimes you can forget that. You can forget the full glory of Jesus, can't you? Do you see how Jesus is so much better? How he surpasses all those trivial things we might fill our lives with, those fleeting things we might set our eyes on, things which might cause us to drift away. Well, these verses are a prologue, I think, and we'll pick up a lot of the themes in much greater detail as we journey through the book of Hebrews in the coming weeks. Uh, In this opening section, you'll notice there's a lot about Christ's glory, his divinity, And later the writer will talk about his humanity. But we're not quite finished yet. There's a couple more sentences. Go back to the end of verse 2, that third line down from the top. The Son is the one through whom also he, which is God, made the universe. God is more than a king. He's even more than someone who has ultimate authority. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. He's the one who is, third line from the bottom, sustaining all things by his powerful word. All things owe their origin and their continuing existence to to what? To whom? To Jesus. Our education teaches us to kind of understand that things really are just there. The clouds, the trees, the world, the universe, well, it's there operating to some kind of uh, set of impersonal laws of physics. But there's no will driving it. There's no authority ruling over it. But it isn't all just there. Existence is not meaningless. There is an almighty creator a sustainer, a personal will and power behind it all. And if that power and will were to be withdrawn, to be taken away, well, all of this would just cease. Our being would just cease. And that personal will and power It's extraordinary. 
It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the most extraordinary reality of them all, right at the centre, the beginning of verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. See, when we see Jesus, we see nothing less than the glory of God. His radiance, the exact representation of his being. It's hard to express in words the wonder of this. Uh, John does it in his Gospel in chapter 1. He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's who Jesus is. Let me say this very clearly. There is no one, there is nothing better than Jesus. How could there possibly be? Right? He's a prophet through whom God has spoken his fullest and final word. He's the king who sits enthroned in all power and all, all authority over everything. He's the priest who's fully forgiven and cleansed his people. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the divine and glorious son, the only one that can bring us into relationship with God. Why would you want to ever drift away from that into sin or disobedience or unbelief or or neglect what is so important that you're too busy to be devoted to Jesus for so today will you pay more careful attention to Jesus? Will you stay with him? Will you cling to him? Let me pray as the band comes up. Loving Father God, we praise you for your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we praise you. Please help us see the glory of Jesus and help us cling to him. Amen.